for about three weeks. Um, anybody that's been out to sea uh, knows the uh, the joys and pains that come from from being being out in the ocean. RP, good to see you. He was with me the whole time as well, so I had some good company. Um, and so we're going to look at John chapter eight, and uh, I'm going to take you through this passage of scripture. I think this is uh, an a pretty interesting passage of scripture for a number of reasons. Um, we get the second I am statement of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ says throughout the gospel of John, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He gives seven I am statements throughout the book of, uh, or throughout the gospel of John. And this is the one we're going to look at here today to start off. And I think that is going to be the catalyst for for an even larger discussion. And it really puts Christ on the defensive here. And so I've entitled the message, Escalating Controversy, The Paternity Suit. So this is the case for Jesus' relationship with the Father. And it has all started with this statement that he says, I am the light of the world. And so we read that in the scripture reading. We're going to dive right in because there's a large passage we're going to look at. And I want to talk about this idea of light, the idea of light of the world, as, as the first main point of the message here. And so, <clears throat> again, this is the... Second of the seven I am statements that Jesus Christ makes. He makes it here as well as in John chapter 9. I don't want to preach next week's message. I've got enough text to cover myself. <laughs> but in John chapter 9, verse 5, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he kind of bookends this whole large passage of Scripture with these, this singular statement, I am the light of the world. And so let's talk about light for a minute. I think it's important to recognize the nature of light. And Christ is good about doing this. He is taking them from what they know to what they don't know. So remember when he saw the woman at the well and he talked about living water? He met her where she was at, what knowledge base that she currently possessed. The idea of going to the well, get physical water so that she would physically be satisfied. But he brings it to a spiritual level and says it's about living water so you'll never thirst again. Right? He does the same thing with the bread of life. He says, you know, I am the bread of life because they had just eaten the loaves and fishes, right? And they were seeking him and he says, you know what? Don't labor for the bread that perishes, but, but again, for the bread that will never that you'll never hunger again speaking of spiritual sustenance the same thing with the, the light of the world here so let's talk about light for a moment i thought there was a fascinating correlation between genesis 1 and john 1. we've already probably mentioned it when we started our study here in the gospel of john but how do the books both start in the beginning, in the beginning right in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. The earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the earth. Um, and then he says, what? Let there be light. The Gospel of John starts the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then we get down to verse 4, and it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. There's a correlation here. So when we look at the nature of light, let's think about this. Light nourishes. We, I think we've all been in science class, right? Photosynthesis. We understand the process, how the light is turned into energy. And the natural world is dependent on the physical sun for things to survive, to flourish, for an ecosystem to, to be established. It is dependent on natural light. Hold that because it is, is, is what, it's, it's what these people know and what we we, we we use as a platform to build this greater reality that he is the light of the world. So light nourishes, light warms, right? You, you, you see 
um, planets where they are far from the sun, they are far from the warmth, right? The temperatures drop drastically because of that. Third thing, the light illuminates, right? Can you imagine walking in a path at night and not have a light? It was interesting because my stateroom was in the, in the center of the ship. And uh, when the lights turned out, it was dark. <laughs> it was like so dark that you couldn't, you know, so they would, they would have a red light so that you could walk throughout the ship at night so that you could see, but it wouldn't um, give away our position if any of that white light came. Because, you know, light travels a long way on a dark sea. So anyway, so the, the point is, is that nat the nature of light is, is something that I think we all can basically understand. But I want to transition to the nature of man. Man in his natural state, man in his unsafe state is in darkness. And Christ elaborates quite a bit on this. It says the spiritually blind. In John 1, 5, we don't need to turn to all these. I've got a lot of verses. You want to see my notes later, you can write down the verses. I'm, I'm happy to share that. But John 1, 5, 5 says that we're spiritually in the dark. Light shines into darkness, speaking of Jesus Christ, coming into this world. And it says the darkness comprehended it not. That, that spiritually blind, spiritually dark is, is, uh, is where we find man at. Not only do we see that man is in the dark spiritually, but you know what complicates the matter? Is it says in 2 Corinthians that Satan has blinded the eyes of those that don't believe. So they're not only dark into to the spiritual realities, but Satan is really good about blinding, putting blinders on the blind man. You know what I mean? So even if he does open his eyes, there's still some inability uh, to, to not be able to see and comprehend. And then what further complicates it is Christ says or paul says in of satan that he has transformed himself into the angel of light so there is there is our blind condition satan's further blinding us and then satan offers a false light so man is in darkness we're in a desperate state without him and then to further complicate it if i if i could get far enough away from the <laughs> mic um, is the fact john three nineteen that says men love darkness rather than light so we get comfortable in that condition. Have you ever been in the dark and all of a sudden lights turn on? It is uncomfortable. Spiritually, it's the same way. So when Jesus Christ makes this case that he is the light of the world, it's based upon these realities that men are in darkness. And they're not comprehending. And that is what develops in the rest of chapters uh, 8. It, verses 13 to 59 is this whole it's subtle. It's this whole case that men love their darkness, that Satan is blinding their eyes, because they are struggling to comprehend what Christ is saying. And at every juncture, there are eight questions in the, in the court case that follows that, that uh, they are opposing to Jesus Christ because they're having a hard time understanding who he is as the light of the world. We'll get to those in a moment, but I think we need to set the stage. It says Jesus Christ is the true light in John chapter 1, verse 9. True is an interesting word. It's the opposite of something fictitious, counterfeit, imaginary, simulated, pretend. It's the opposite of what is imperfect, defective, frail, and uncertain. And Jesus Christ is not an artificial light. He is not a temporary light. He is the eternal light of the world. Amen. And so when we look at Christ, he is true. He is the true light. He's also the available light. It says the light of the Jews, right? The light of the Gentiles? A light for just a generation? No, it's the light of the world. So there's an availability of that light for all humanity. I love what Malachi says, the prophet in the Old Testament. Last Old Testament book, right at the end 
of the prophetic messenger's message in Malachi 4.2, it says this, the son of righteousness, meaning S-U-N, track with me here, shall rise with healing in his wings. So Jesus Christ, even by Malachi, is described as a light. The sun radiating righteousness with healing in his wings. And so the light of Jesus Christ is a life-giving light. Just like we read earlier, that he was the light of life to all men. So this is who Christ is. He is the available light. He is the giver of life. He is the guiding light. It says that uh, in Psalms, I love Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's a guiding light. And Jesus Christ says, whoever builds his life upon these words, um, it's, it's like a firm foundation. It's a life well lived. And so he's the guiding light. And then I think fast forward to the light described in Revelation. Do you think there's a need for the sun in that eternal place called heaven? Not a physical sun. Because the Revelation says that Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness, is going to radiate with all his glory. And it's the eternal day. He is the bright and morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. He is the light of the world. So much here. This is this is hard to just not just preach a message on, on the light of the world. But I have uh, quite a few verses to cover next. But it's the foundation on which all this is to be built. And finally, not only the nature of light, the nature of an unbeliever, the nature of Christ, with relation to light, the nature of the believer is important as well. Acts twenty six eighteen says that he has opened their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. So when we do accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, God opens our eyes. He, he, he removes the blinders and we are able to see in a way that we've never seen before. We're able to live in a way that honors God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 through 16. I'm going to summarize. It says they, that you are the light of the world. Wait a minute. I thought Christ was the light of the world. Now Christ is telling his followers that they are the light of the world. I'll explain that in a minute, but just follow with me here. Let your light shine before men that they may see your works, your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So here's, here's what, I, what, I, what I see here is being described. Christ, the light, like the sun, right? How do, well, let me ask this. How do we know that the sun is shining even at night? It reflects off the moon. A lesser light. The moon isn't self-illuminating, right? There's nothing on fire on that rock, all right? It's not like the sun. But we know that the sun is existent in the darkest of night because the moon reflects the presence of the sun. It's the same spiritually, folks. The way that a lost world in the dark knows that Jesus Christ is the light of the world is because it's reflected through our lives. And in the dark of our sinful night called humanity, People can see Jesus Christ radiating and reflecting off of our own lives. We don't self-illuminate. We're not good by nature. We're actually dark and lost and separated from God, just like the rest of the world. But what happens for the believer is that glorious person, Jesus Christ, is reflected in our lives. Amen. And yes, the sir. world can see him because they see him in us. Amen. I should stop there. Let's see. Yes, <laughs> You'd wish that it was the case. We're just getting started. So, but all this sets the foundation for what is going to be discussed later on. And then finally, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7 says that, 
that the believers or that the covenant people of God are a light to the Gentiles. It says a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes. This is who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Our eyes have been opened. Our light should be reflecting the glory of God, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. So with that said, it sparks a firestorm of, 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 and a reaction with the audience there in the temple. John, uh, Mike read it for us, right? He was in the temple saying these things, and, uh, and as he said, I am the light of the world, there's going to be an immediate reaction by the Pharisees. So with each of the scenes of this court case unfolding all the way through to verse 59, I'm going to try to segment it to you. All right, so there is going to be a question, and there's going to be a, a, an individual, or I should say a group of individuals representing that question, and he is going to give a response to that question. So this is how the rest of the message is going to go. It'll be, first, the defense of his self-witness. So the Pharisees are the ones that are accusing him. Are you bearing witness about yourself? Your testimony is not true. So the Pharisees begin to accuse him as being the light of the world, saying, that's a pretty bold statement. Do you have any, anybody else that will verify or testify to that? Because in the Old Testament, if there was only one witness to a statement or a testimony, um, that testimony couldn't be trusted. It's out of the mouth of two or three witnesses can be, a testimony be established. And so what they do is they jump on this because they think nobody else is, is going to validate this truth, and they begin to attack him here. You say that you're the light of the world. Can anybody else validate that or verify that? If you say this and, and there's nobody else to validate it, then we can dismiss this as being false. And so that's the conversation that happens. So Jesus is defending his self-witness, and because he is not a truth— he is the truth. In John chapter... Sorry about that. Because of the fact that he is truth, he is able to... He could, he could just stop here, right? You know, his, his, his self-testimony, because he is the living son of God, he could, it could stand on its own. He's from heaven, they're from earth. He's eternal, they're temporal. And so, but he, he, he goes with it. He goes, you want another testimony? He goes, my father testifies to me. And so there's this great discussion of his paternity. Who is your father? What is this relationship you're talking about? His father is in heaven. And he goes back and forth with them, basically saying, if you were to know my father, you would know me. But since you don't know my father, um, you, you wouldn't recognize me. And then in 44, this sort of goes with this. He says, you're of your father the devil that builds to that he doesn't get to it right away but he says this is your problem this is why so christ is initially put on the defense and watch this thing shift as we move he will soon put them on defense he will be the the accuser and they're the accused but he's going to go with it for now the way it is and so the second question rises up and he is addressing the jews let's jump down to verse 21 to 30 follow as i read so he said to them again Verse 21 of John 8. So he said to them again, I am going away. And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And Jesus said, we'll, 
will he, or I mean, sorry, the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, he cannot come? And he said to them, ye are from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just as I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to you the world, I, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And they did not understand that he had been speaking about, or speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing, not on my own authority, but speak just as the Father hath taught me. And so he sent me. So he who sent me is with me, and he has left, has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying the thing, these things, and many believed on him. And so here's the audience for this next discussion. It's the Jews uh, that, that, are, that are in that audience. The Pharisees got it started when they questioned his, his authority, and the Jews now follow up with a question, and there's a discussion of the future. What does the future look like for Christ? The future is his death, right? So he begins to talk about not only his paternity, who he is related to, the Father, and how he's doing the Father's will, but that his life will end on the cross. He's going to die. And they couldn't understand that where he was going, that they weren't going. And it was, again, a spiritual ins insight that he was ascending back to heaven where he came from, and that as sinners, if they didn't repent and turn from their sin, they would spend an eternity separated from him. And so this is the discussion. And I like what it says is he compares his death versus their death and begin to ask who he is. Who are you? Because I've been trying to tell you all along who I am. And I think he's, he's again, there, he, he's highlighting the fact that he's the light of the world and they are not comprehending the light, right? That Satan is blinding the mind of those that don't believe. And so this is what's generating, I think, a lot of the confusion. But I thought was fascinating, this only in this portion here do we find that people respond in a positive way. At the end of verse 30, it says, many believed in him. So it shifts, and he redirects his attention to not just the Jews in general, but now to those that would be believers in him. There, there was some comprehension. It's as if their eyes began to open a little bit. They began to... To, to, to hear what he is saying, and they began to believe. So he begins to direct his thoughts towards those that were believers, and that's what's happening next. And this is probably the, the audience, hopefully, that I'm speaking to, is a group of people that have chosen to accept Jesus Christ and that are followers of him. If you haven't, then I think there's a need for you to come to know Christ. But if you have accepted Christ, here's the powerful truth liberating truth for the believers that is found in verses 31 to 36. Follow along as I read. Verse 31, And Jesus said to the Jews that had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him. Here's another question. I think there's eight questions through this whole question, the whole section. 
We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slaves do not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And so if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Again, similar, similar organization of thought. The statement of reality. If you are a true disciple, and that's what speaks to my heart probably the most here, is that we need to abide in the word. What does it mean to abide in the word? The best way that I can think of it, I love illustrations because it takes the, the, the spiritual world and puts it, um, you know, it's like, it's like windows into that spiritual world. Um, do you ever do the science experiments in, 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 in elementary school where you put that stalk of celery in like uh, blue water or something or red water, the food coloring in it? What happens to the mm -hmm. celery after it sits in the water for a little while? It changes color. It changes color, right? It starts to reflect the environment that it's sitting in, right? So it's the same way with a Christ. If we, if, if we are biting in his word, we're like the stalk of celery in that food-colored water, right? Mm -hmm. And if we're in there long enough, abiding in the word, the word soon reflects and is seen outwardly in our lives. Amen. Have you ever had garlic, like a real heavy garlic, and then you go to talk to somebody about 20 minutes later after having a meal that was full of garlic? <laughs> They've known you've eaten garlic, all right? <laughs> curry probably the same way. You start sweating and your pores smell like curry. I mean, I don't mean to gross you out, but people know that it's in you, right? <laughs> And I want people to know that we've ab uh, been abiding in the Word of God, that without even trying, it just naturally, it, it, it emanates from us. They can smell something different. They can see something different. Their senses are engaged because we've been abiding in the Word of God. We cannot force this. We cannot accelerate the process. We can't skip the Word of God as followers of Jesus Christ and not expect it to, or somehow to just somehow show up in our lives. It's a very intentional it's a daily effort. Have you read through the Word of God? You know, I'm not trying to brag. I'm not a reader. I'll just tell you that. When I read in school, kids laughed at me, so I didn't read. It just complicated the process. So I just stopped reading. Didn't help. Well, as a Christian, at 18, enlisted in the United States Air Force, I said, the first book I'm going to read is the Bible. I'm going to force myself into daily discipline to get through the Word. It's not easy, and it was hard. I didn't understand most days what I was even reading, but I said, I'm going to do this. Even if I don't get something daily, I'm going to be disciplined in this daily process. Here we are. How many years later? It's still the routine that I'm in. Every year since I gotten saved, I read through the Bible at least once. In the last probably 15 years, I said, you know what? Um, I need to do this more. So every six months, I read through the Bible. I've been through the Bible over 50 times, and folks, it doesn't get boring. It doesn't get, it doesn't get, um, I'm always, always learning something. It's always speaking, this book is a living book. It speaks to us like no other book speaks to us. And if we don't abide in the Word, the Word isn't going to be reflected in our lives. It is not going to be evident. We will not become fluent in our Christianity unless we are in the Word. It's the truth that sets us free. I hope that we're not just liberated at the point of salvation because we've accepted Jesus Christ. But I hope daily we are liberated from the sins and the things that easily beset us in our walk. That you would find that the Son has truly set you free. That's the liberating truth for the believer. 
Here's where Christ is incredibly patient. He just keeps going here. He doesn't just stop there. This would be another great place to stop. They were slaves to sin. And he set them free. It wasn't about being in a people group that was enslaved. It was about spiritually being enslaved in their sin and Christ set them free. Well, here's where it intensifies. In verse 37, groups shifts again. I think he's speaking now to the unbelievers because you can see the tone and the direction of this whole thing change. He goes, I know that you are of the offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Look at the last verse of this whole section. They took up stone to stone him. This, this is what he saw that there, you know how he'd look at an audience and Jesus Christ could read at the audience? Like right now I can read the audience and some of you are thinking, I wish this guy would wrap it up. Um, but he could really know it was in the heart of man and he could really see what they were thinking as he was talking to this group about how the truth sets you free. He looked over at this group and they were steaming, you know, the veins pulsing in the neck and the steam coming out the ears. They were beginning to be filled with rage, wanting to kill him. He goes, I know what's in your heart. I just talked to you and now I know what's in your heart. And he, and he singles out another group that wants to kill him. And so... This is where he would say you are not, he goes, I know you're from Abraham's seed, the nation of Israel, right? He goes, but really you're from your father, the devil. In verse 44, I'm just going to keep moving here. You're, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, because I tell you the truth, verse 45, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Wherever, or I'm sorry, whoever is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, why do you not hear them? Uh, hear them uh, is uh, let me start that again the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God so again the, the one on, on his defense or the one in defense Jesus now becomes the one on the offense he begins to accuse them of their real problem they're sinners by nature separated from God they're not influenced by the father they're influenced by this, the, the, the enemy himself Satan they're not children of light right now. They're children in darkness. Satan is blinding the minds because they do not believe. They, they are in their sin, happy in their sin. They, they, they love sin rather than darkness, or love sin rather and, and darkness rather than light. And, and this whole light of the world is, is subliminal, but shows up throughout this whole passage. And they accuse, and he accuses them of, of who they really are. Sinners separated from God. Now as we keep moving here to 48 through 59, as this comes to an end, it is his it's really confirmation of Christ's eternality. He's eternally the Son of God, worthy of honor and glory, but they're refusing it to give to give it to him. So let's let's read to this last section, 48 through 59. 
And this is again the Jews as the audience. The Jews as a whole answer him. Are we not right? And and here, look at the intensity. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You see how it's escalating? These are the unbelievers in the group. And Jesus answered, I, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste that. See, they're, they're stuck in two different realms. One's seen an eternal perspective, Christ. Other one's seen an earthly perspective, the unbelieving Jews. Verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glory myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me to whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus himself, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Notice how things intensify and escalate. When they can no longer understand what he is saying, they no longer can, can, or they could never really process what he was trying to communicate, the intensity escalates. You ever have a discussion with somebody and, and, and you just, you, you can't get through to them and they grow increasingly frustrated and they storm out of the room, slam doors, throw something and maybe start name calling, right? When things escalate, you know that you've no longer connected or you, you haven't had the ability to connect intellectually. Things become, um, unfortunately, it escalates and, and gets ugly. That's kind of what's happening here. The human nature is taking place here. Could not comprehend what he was saying. They were stuck in a dark physical world and he was in the world of light communicating truth and unfortunately many did not understand what he was saying and it ended with him leaving the temple uh, in a hurry because his life was at stake what can we take from this I know we've we've covered quite a bit of ground here scripturally but I think there's some important takeaways remember separated from God in our sinful condition, we are in the dark. Christ is the light of the world. There is hope for each one of us that we can be set free from our sin and, and, and the wage of sin being death by accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Once we've accepted Jesus Christ, he opens our eyes, our lights, our, 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 our eyes open up and we can see things that are, that are, that are of great